Hey, how you hey, doing? Good. Good to see you. Hey, I'm just here to watch. I get to report back to the rest of the team once he's just got back from vacation. I did. To be honest with you, from WGBH News in Boston, this is the scrum. I tried to get everybody out of here so I could be honest with you guys. I'm Adam Riley. I'm Peter Kansas. And this week, we're talking with this guy. My name is Doug Rubin. I'm a partner at Northwind Strategies. Each week on The Scrum, we talk about media and politics from Beacon Hill to the Beltway. This Rubin guy really knows politics. I started in uh, politics back in 1990. first person I worked for was Congressman Joe Kennedy. And since that time, I've worked on a number of campaigns, including uh, Treasurer Tim Cahill, Deval Patrick's two campaigns, worked on Congressman Kennedy's son, Joe Kennedy III, congressional campaign, and also uh, Senator Warren's campaign. And... Most recently, uh, just coming off the uh, governor's election here, working with Martha Coakley. It's worth remembering how dramatic some of those victories were. Deval Patrick wasn't supposed to win either of his two races for governor, and Elizabeth Warren wasn't supposed to beat Scott Brown. So for a while there, it seemed like Doug Rubin had a political Midas touch. But this fall, he lost a huge race when his client Martha Coakley was defeated by Charlie Baker. We sat down with Rubin at Northwind's government center offices to talk about a bunch of topics, including why Charlie Baker won, whether Martha Coakley is getting an unfair rap for her campaign. By the way, this whole interview was conducted under the watchful eye of Kyle Sullivan, who used to be Governor Patrick's communications director and is now a colleague of Rubin's at Northwind. This is the first interview we've done where a minder watched us speak with a given interviewee. Adam, I was rather flattered by that. Clearly, these guys value control. And they see us as as forces to be reckoned with. Well, if you say so. All right, let's start with the bit of the conversation that focused on Martha Coakley. What did it mean to be Martha Coakley's consultant? We help put together the basically the entire campaign from the messaging and how we want to talk about the campaign uh, versus some of the communications plans and the strategy and then the voter outreach as well as. And we work with an entire team. It's not just us. We work with the campaign manager and the finance team. Our job is to try to lay out all the different options, lay out the strengths and weaknesses, what's going to happen if we choose different courses. Um, but the candidate really drives kind of where we want to go. And most importantly, we never tell the candidate where to stand on the issues. The candidate, that comes from the candidate. Any good candidate is going to come to a campaign with a set of values and a set of beliefs, and they're going to, those are going to drive the campaign. And then we try to work with those and try to communicate those in the best way possible during the campaign. Northwind is involved in both active electoral politics, but you also have a a big, probably most of your business is private consulting. How do you handle internal conflicts of interest? Most of our, about 90% of our revenue here is on the corporate nonprofit side, so it's not the political side. You know, we take campaigns that we believe in and people we believe in. It's kind of a nice luxury that we have here. It's not a necessary part of the business. We don't need it to survive and keep the doors open. To be honest with you, that ruins most of the conflicts because, you know, the issues we work on are issues we we believe in as well. And the candidates are aligned, that's great. And so if things come up, we try to address them openly and transparently. That's kind of the way I've always tried to deal with it, whether in state government or outside of state government. Um, and we disclose to clients if we think there are potential issues. And you know, there are, are certain instances where one client or another will say, look, I can't live with that and we'll have to part ways and move on. But we just try to be very open and transparent about what we do. Does that include sort of candid and potentially semi-awkward conversations like say, and I'm not trying to get you to talk out of school, but um, you had Martha Coakley running for governor 
uh, at a time when you were working with Suffolk Downs. No, everything is very explicit on how we do things. So everybody knows kind of where the issues are there on both sides. So, you know, in that case, both Suffolk Downs and Martha would know that. We deal with that in one of two ways, and it's really up to the client about how we deal with it. In some instances, we will, if we have, a, have that kind of issue, we'll tell the client, whether it's Martha or, or whether it's Suffolk Downs or any other client, and we will recuse ourselves. So we won't be part of that conversation, and we'll let other people on the team make that decision move forward. Otherwise, if we're part of that conversation, my hard and fast rule is I will always tell the person, the client I'm with, what I think is in their best interest. But have you had to say, you know, candidate X, you know I'm working with company A, but and they have this goal. But for you, the best thing politically would be to say that you don't want that goal to be realized. Has that ever happened? Yes, it has happened. And we are upfront about it. And we talk about it with both clients so that they know where we are on this one. And like I said, the vast majority, almost all of our clients are fine with it. They trust our advice and, and they accept those issues. And those rare cases where they don't, then we will make a choice or the client will make a choice for us and we'll part ways on that. And I always feel that transparency and kind of openness is the best way to deal with those issues and so that everybody knows everything on the table and then they can make the decisions they feel are in their best interest. Obviously, you had two big wins with Governor Patrick and a big win with Elizabeth Warren. And some people thought of you as a sort of inexorable democratic force. It was like anyone you worked with was was going to roll to victory. Um, now you have, I know not your first loss, but maybe your first big loss in a while. And as you know, there are some people, critics of yours who are, uh, if you look at Blue Mask Group or other places, enjoying uh, the fact that your candidate didn't win. My first question on this front is, do you pay attention to that stuff? You, you're nodding your head in recognition like you've at least picked up on it. I know you do look at Blue Mask Group. Do you pay attention to this stuff and does it does it bug you? Uh, I do pay. I would be lying to you if I told you I didn't pay attention to it. I, I spend probably an inordinate amount of time on Blue Mask Group. I think the guys here at Northwind are trying to convince me not to do that. But I, I just think it's important to stay in the loop with a lot of things. And it's not just Blue Mask Group. I actually spend a lot of time on Red Mask Group and other kind of blogs around here just to... Are you simple Jay Malarkey? I am not, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't contribute to Red Mask Group, but I definitely want to read what's going on there so I know what's coming um, down the road. And um, yeah, it does. It bothers me, but I, it also is part of the game. You know, there was a certain amount of credit that went around when we won, and I totally understand that when we lose, there's a certain amount of blame to go around, and there will be people who, you know, will take some fun in that. And I don't take that personally. I think that's part of the game. I understand it. I totally accept it. At the end of the day, our job is to win elections, and when we don't win elections, you know, we deserve the criticism. I do think that Coakley was battling a large trend to have Massachusetts go back to a semblance of two-party governance. How as a consultant do you take, you know, like these big macro trends that are impossible to pin down and translate it into a plan of action? I am of the belief that elections are, these big macro trends have a big impact on elections. I mean, I think it's really important for people in my uh, situation to try to figure out what that is. I mean, that is, all that is basically is a reflection of the voters and the voters have ultimate say in this thing. So if you don't figure that out, you really haven't figured out the election at all. And there was clearly a movement back to that that kind of stage where Massachusetts likes to have a Republican in office as a counterbalance. But I also think there was a lot of support and movement for a lot of the issues and the values that Governor Patrick started and that Elizabeth Warren picked up on and others have picked up on. And I think that was the battle in this campaign was between those two kind of big forces in this election. And you know, to give credit where credit is due, I think the Baker campaign and Charlie Baker did a better job of kind of fitting into that narrative than we did fitting into the other one, and that's why they won. I've heard this um, 
argument from other people, including Mo Cowan, when we spoke with him recently, he said that uh, Charlie Baker was a Deval Patrick Republican. What are some examples, as you see it, that show that Charlie Baker successfully appropriated Governor Patrick's legacy or achievements in a way that Martha Coakley didn't? Yeah, I don't I actually, I don't, I slightly disagree with Mo on this one. I think that Charlie did some of that and there was a lot of arguments in that, but I don't think that's the reason why he won. I think that there were two big countervailing forces in this. One was the two-party kind of return to this and, and some of the stuff that's going on on Beacon Hill and Democratic, one-party Democratic rule. And I think the Baker campaign did a really good job of kind of fitting into that narrative and showing Charlie's strengths in that narrative and then adding to it, which I think was critical, the management piece, that not so much just the, you know, kind of the two-party balance, but somebody who could manage state government better. And they did a really good job of kind of fitting in that narrative. And we were not as, as successful as we could have been. We lost, obviously, um, as trying to fit into the alternative. Now that we were trying to spin that there were a lot of good things going on, that Martha Coakley was much better positioned, that her values were much more consistent with where the state was and where the state was going. And we were not as successful as kind of making that, kind of fitting into that narrative. And I think at the end of the day, the Baker campaign, and Charlie deserved credit for doing that. Um, David Axelrod, who I know you worked with on Governor Patrick's first campaign, wrote this piece recently in the Wall Street Journal in which he kind of kicked the crap out of Coakley as a candidate. And I got to say that that when I heard what Axelrod had said, and when I've heard other people, you know, Tom Brokaw said she was a terrible candidate on MSNBC, it didn't jibe, doesn't jibe with what I saw from her on the campaign trail. She's not Deval Patrick, but few people are. I felt like it was clear if you watched her that she grew as a candidate. Has she gotten short shrift locally or nationally from people who say that, you know, she was bad and she remained bad? Man, I was really hoping you weren't asking me about Axelrod. <laughs> David's a friend of mine. I've worked with him closely. There's probably nobody that I respect more in this business than David Axelrod. I think he's one of the smartest, if not the smartest people I've ever worked with. But he was dead, dead wrong about that comment. I mean, it's not even close to reality. And it's unfortunate that he would say that not being here and not seeing her in action. Anybody who was here and saw her would know that that was just, it was just crap. And she was a really, really good candidate. And she did everything we asked her to do. And I think the D.C. narrative um, was hard to deal with because none of those D.C. people came to Massachusetts and saw her on the trail every day. But if you followed her on the trail, you knew that that was just not the case at all. And I understand why it happens. There's a whole DC talk circuit, and they kind of keep talking to themselves and get that. But they should come and they should have seen her because it was a very different story if you saw her one on one. I thought the critics, Coakley's critics, were way off base. And my theory is that the Democrat, the National Democrats in in uh, Washington D.C. and the local press has still not gotten over the fact that they didn't see. Coakley's loss coming to Scott, Brown. to Scott Brown, that they didn't see it coming and that the, the Democratic national establishment and the local journalistic establishment will not ever forgive Martha Coakley for their own shortcomings. Yeah, look, I, I get the narrative. I mean, I we were not involved in the 2010 Senate race, but I was in state and I watched it like everybody else. And I understand that people were frustrated and, and got it. But to me, the frustrating thing for Martha is that Yes, look, whatever happens, you got to take the take the, the blame for that and you got to move on. And she did that gracefully, very gracefully. But the, to me, there was a much more competing narrative that never got told, which was here's someone who had a very public defeat, you know, was made fun of on Saturday Night Live. There are very few candidates where it gets to that level, right? It's a national kind of issue. 
And yet she didn't walk away. She didn't. She ran for re-election. She did the hard work as AG. And then she put herself out there for governor in a race that she knew was going to be a tough race. I mean, knew that there was a likelihood she was going to lose and yet put herself out there. And to me, that's so much more compelling message that it says so much more about Martha Coakley than the 2010 campaign does. And it was incredibly frustrating that we couldn't get anybody to pick up on that. I mean, I mean, look, what, I'm not looking to make excuses. We lost. But it was incredibly unfair to Martha to not at least tell the second part of that story. I get it. You got to tell the first part that 2010 is a part of that race. I don't have any problems with that. But they should have told the second part of that in much more detail, and nobody did. And that's unfair to Martha. Do you buy Peter's idea that the natural political equilibrium in Massachusetts is a Republican governor with a Democrat-controlled legislature or not? I do think that there was a wave, and I do agree with you in the fact that there was a sentiment to do that, and it had an impact on the race. But the fact that it was so close and the fact that this really could have gone either way, depending on a few issues, to me says that it wasn't a foregone conclusion a year ago, as you say, that this was going to happen, that this really was a battle between two candidates. And, you know, I, like I said, I've said it before, you give Baker credit. They, they were figured out a way to, to get it done, and we did it, and so they won. But I, I don't think it was a foregone conclusion in this respect, in that respect. I'd like to switch gears to Senator Warren. You talk in the press corps, and everyone in Man- – I'm talking about the local press corps. Everyone recognizes um, Senator Warren as a force of nature. But the pe- people are continually ticked off that she won't talk to the press. Now, Adam could t- say when we worked together – got to say he, he did it quietly, but Doug was laughing as soon as you said that <laughs> rather heartily. So, <laughs> Well – as an editor, I'm always amazed that anyone talks to the press. But but that aside, you're also credited with being the architect of the freeze them out. Now, I have no idea whether there's any truth to it, but it really does seem like she is not accessible to the local media. Am I right? Am I wrong? I mean, I, I think that's a little overblown at times. I really do. At the end of the day, you know, she is... She's responsible to the constituents of Massachusetts, the people who elected her. And I think if they had a problem with it, then they would let her know about it. But they seem pretty happy with her, and her approval rating seems pretty good right now. And so I don't think her job is to kind of cater to the media. And I think she is available when she needs to be and when it's appropriate to be, and she is focused on a job when that's appropriate. And so, you know, I understand I hear that all the time, but I think I think her job is to do what she got to do, and she's doing that very, very well. I just got to say for the record that I have in meetings in our newsroom with colleagues who will remain nameless have defended Senator Warren against the charge that she has been rendered inaccessible. And what I've said, and I've said this about Joe Kennedy as well, is that if you go catch them at a public event, they'll talk to you. They may not come and make an appearance on whatever legacy media shows people want them to come and make an appearance on. But uh, And that can be frustrating if you see, say, Senator Warren on MSNBC talking to Rachel Maddow when you were trying to get her for Greater Boston. But you can go out in the field and talk to her or talk to Joe Kennedy. It, so it's, I do think the inaccessibility thing, it, it's, everyone complains about it. I think it's overblown. Yeah, and look, I would just say, I just want to be clear, like, I think the media serves a really important role. And it's a very appropriate for them to make the request and to try to hold these elected officials accountable and to, 
you know, and to get frustrated if they feel like they're not getting their answers. That's perfectly appropriate. I, I understand that. I like I respect the role the media plays and the reports play, and we have some of the best reporters in the country here in Massachusetts who do this stuff. So I get that, but I also think there has to be an understanding on their part that the senator has a job to do, and she was elected to do that job, and she's trying to do it the best way she thinks is possible. And there's always going to be that healthy tension. I get that part of it. Let's talk about what kind of governor uh, you think Charlie Baker is going to be. As you know, there was this attempt to modify his image from 2010 to 2014. How do you expect him to govern, and what do you make of this? Uh, what do you make of the decisions he's made so far as governor-elect in terms of cabinet appointments and things like that? This is the point where I get in trouble, right? So. <laughs> um, all right, let me tell you what I think about this. I, The Charlie Baker that I knew personally before 2010 was a guy that I really liked and admired and I thought was a really effective guy and a really good guy and did, did a good job. What I saw in 2010 during the campaign, I wasn't a big fan of, particularly at the end, as some of the attacks they made against the governor, which I thought were out of bounds. Remind um, us specifically. Yeah, I mean, in particularly some of the the some of the stuff that was done around the EBT cards at the end of the campaign, I just thought were out of bounds. Now, the Charlie Baker that I saw in 2014 was very different and was much more like the Charlie Baker that I knew before the 2010 campaign. And and so my hope is is that is where he ends up and that's where he governs. And I'm more than willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Is it uh, a smart move, as you see it, for him to be appointing Democrats to his administration, like Jay Ash, for example? And will it make whoever challenges him from the Democratic side in four years have a tougher, uh, tougher job when it comes to unseating Baker? I think it's less important whether they're Democrat or Republican. It's whether they're kind of, they can do the job well. I mean, I think that's the issue there. And the two appointees that I know well, uh, uh, Jay Ash and Mary Lou Sutters, Awesome appointees, both really strong. They are very good at what they do. I, I have high hopes for both of them. I worked with Jay a little bit um, on a couple of issues, and know Mary Lou, and I, I think they are really good appointments. And, you know, my hope is that that's a good indication of how they're going to go forward. I don't know some of the other appointees as well, but my hope is that, that you know, and my expectations that they'll be good appointees and move forward. And look, I think at this point the election's over. Charlie deserves the opportunity to kind of prove to the voters that he's going to do this job and do it well. Um, I was in this situation back in 06. Um, I know what it's like and how hard it is trying to get everything together and put all this together and work and put a team together. And so, you know, at, back then, my hope was that people would give us time to do this and to try to put a team together and make the point. And I think that's what we should be doing for Charlie. I want to get Peter's blood pressure jacked up by mentioning the Boston 2024 shirt that I see draped over a chair over there. We were on the radio the other day with uh, Egan and Browdy, was righteously irate over the prospect Ap of apoplectic. the apoplectic even. So, so Doug, can you r remind me, what's your affiliation with Boston 2024? I'm on the executive committee, and then we are handling uh, the public relations for them as they move forward. So given that, you have before you a skeptical Boston resident who really doesn't like the idea of the games coming to Boston. Can you make a case to Peter uh, about why Boston Olympics would be a good idea? I, I think that there's a strong case. But before I make the case, I think anybody who is involved in this effort would acknowledge that there are legitimate points on the other side and that, that we need to kind of work those out and have that conversation and have that kind of debate um, before any final decisions are made. And I know that the, the committee of Boston 24 is committed to doing that. I do think from a from a perspective of long-term planning and where the city wants to go and where the state wants to go and the kinds of investments I believe we need to make in the infrastructure uh, of the city and state, that the Olympics could be a driver and something that spurs that on. And 
having sat in state government and outside of state government and seen kind of what works to make sure those things move forward and doesn't, a lot of times you need a deadline. You need something that's a focus to make these kind of investments happen or they languish. There's no political will. There's no kind of – it's always easier to default to not doing it than doing it. You see, what I worry about – I live in Jamaica Plain within walking distance of Franklin Park, um, which would be impacted in a major way, is – I can't think of an example in recent memory where the Olympics haven't gotten the better of the of the host community. I, I just think, by the way, I don't doubt anyone's intentions. I don't think it's a nefarious plot to do X, Y, or Z. I just think that the Olympics are great at fleecing local communities to get what they want. One, on the specific issue around Franklin Park, no final decisions have been made. And so if the residents of JP and the residents of Boston felt that Franklin Park wasn't an appropriate site, then that would be taken in and we would find an alternate site to do this if we we're fortunate enough to move forward on this. So I don't think any of those decisions have been made. And on the long-term piece, I agree with you to an extent, but the, the IOC has just recently released this new set, this new vision for the Olympics uh, 2020, they call it, uh, talking about addressing some of those issues and trying to make the game sustainable going forward. And I I think that Boston has the potential to kind of fit right into that kind of new model that the IOC has laid out. I want to ask a, a question just hooked uh, to what you said to Peter about Franklin Park, about how, you know, if, if people in the neighborhood thought that that wasn't a good venue, then, then another site would be sought. Um, I actually don't have strong feelings about the Olympics one way or another, maybe because I live in the suburbs. But it seems to me that, that one thing that bothers uh, some skeptics is that in fact, the residents of Boston haven't said whether they think the games, period, are a good idea. And all of a sudden, it seems to have gone from this hypothetical that was poo-pooed by former Mayor Tom Menino to something which is destined to happen if the business community and civic leaders in Boston get what they want. So is there going to be a mechanism offered for people in Boston or people in greater Boston to say, we want the games here, we don't want them here? And should there be? There should be and there will be, yes. And Boston 24 is committed to doing that. There's a process that's been laid out by the United States Olympic Committee about this um, and that we are following closely. This is still in the early stages as we move forward, and there will be a time for the community to be engaged and involved and to have a say on venues and sites and overall issues as well. What about uh, an up or down, do we want or don't we want the Olympics? I don't, it's, not, it's not necessarily part of the process. I don't know as we move forward how we, how we do that, but I, I know for a fact that there will be a very significant kind of civic engagement and information sessions as we go forward, and there will be a lot of exchange of ideas back and forth. And none of the venues that have been discussed are set in stone. And there's still a lot of flexibility in the schedule. We're early in the process. And I think that is, you know, kind of one of the things that will obviously be done as we move forward. I want to ask you before we go, obviously, about Governor Patrick. What do you hope he does with the rest of his career? Well, look, Governor Patrick, to me, has been a very inspirational figure. So I hope that he does something in the public public realm at some point. I really do. I think he is a unique individual. I've worked with a lot of candidates over the years, and I have very rarely seen somebody who brings as much compassion and kind of a strong set of values to state government and is willing to stand on those values, even in, you know, kind of a lot of difficult times with a lot of people taking shots at him. Um, I think that's unique and different. And my hope is that he does something in the public realm. My expectation is that he, he will probably go off to the private sector and do something very successfully there and maybe stay engaged in other public ways. But uh, I'm not convinced he'll run for public office again. All right, Doug, I know you've got work to do. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks a lot, Doug. All no, right, thank well. you. I really enjoy what you guys are doing, so keep it up. It's been great, right. and happy to happy to, to join. 
Doug Rubin is a political strategist and founding partner at Northwind Strategies. To subscribe to the Scrum Podcast, please visit our website. It's at wgbhnews.org slash scrum. There are links there to iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also listen to past episodes and read our blog posts. You can find me, Adam Riley, on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. That's R-E-I-L-L-Y Adam. Peter, remind me, what's your Twitter handle again? At Kadzis. K-A-D-Z-I-S. The Scrum team also includes WGBH political analyst David Bernstein and producer Abby Ruzica. Special thanks to John Parker, Alan Mattis, and Edgar B. Herwick III this week. I'm Adam Riley. I'm Peter Kadzis. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. We'll talk to you next week. the cause